live with the Cood Street podcast from the International Conference on the Fantastic in Orlando, Florida, where the weather is stuff we want to get back out in. So. <laughs> and our guests today are Steve Erickson and Ian McDonald, who, who we actually had the opening ceremony panel with, and I thought we had a great discussion going um, in terms of the theme of the conference, which is Fantastic Empires or Empires and the Fantastic or something, which we don't have to talk about. No. <laughs> uh, but thank you both for being here, and thank, thank you, Ian, for making a long, arduous journey. Oh, to it was. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Through dungeon, fire, and sword. <laughs> but one of the things that occurred to me when we were talking about panel yesterday is, whether it's the theme of empire or not, you've both dealt with this from the perspective of fantasy, in, in, in Steve's case, and the perspective of science fiction and in Ian's case, and if you're dealing with, I'm just making this question up right now, um, if you're dealing with reflections of the real world, as, as Steve, you were saying earlier, the, the real world, um, but to quote our uh, other guest of honor, Nydia Korofor, the real world writes you as well as you writing it. Uh, and and you've, got a, you've got a massively complicated series mm -hmm. in which... Uh, uh, all sorts of political and anthropological themes come in. How does that play out differently in fantasy than it would in science fiction? <clears throat> well, I'll give you an example, which probably could be used if you were doing an alternate history kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I was driving through uh, South Dakota with my wife on a vacation, and um, we were stopping off at various roadside um, cafes mm -hmm. to gas up and, and to have something to eat. And I was noticing that on all the walls, you'd have these framed collections of spear points and, and arrowheads. Mm -hmm. Just hundreds of them, hundreds of them. And so I picked up some books because we were at a, at a museum in, in Pierre, the capital Pierre, South Dakota, yeah. yeah. Which actually is actually Pierre, but it's been Americanized into Pierre. Oh, I'm glad to know that. <laughs> yeah. And um, went to the museum there and reading the history of the uh, Sioux Wars uh, with the uh, U.S. cavalry, mm -hmm. um, and it was it was quite a blasé statement of this particular mm -hmm. period of, of what was effectively genocide, um, and so I was about to write the fifth novel of my series called Midnight Tides, and it occurred to me that I could actually approach this, but from a um, from the setting that I've created and that we've created, Camerai, in uh, the fantasy world, and. Uh, basically run a thought experiment. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, well, what if the Sioux had, for whatever reason, been technologically superior to the U.S. Army, the U.S. Cavalry? Mm -hmm. And what if they had actually defeated the U.S. Cavalry and then collectively marched on Washington and conquered it? And that was the idea. Ah. And so then when I, when I sat down with the book, I thought, well, that's going to be kind of the start of this, but where does it go from there? What would happen? What would happen? And um, interestingly, as I explored it, because I don't like to have my answers before I'm writing, I want to find out where this goes. Mm -hmm. um, it became fairly quickly clear to me that the, the domination that was occurring was not just military between the U.S. and the Sioux. It was mm -hmm. cultural as well. And it was, it was technological in the sense of uh, a global... Uh, economy was already up and running at this time. And so the people, the Sioux, who would come into power in Washington would find themselves very quickly subsumed in terms of their cultural identity into the apparatus 
of this, this new nation that was taking shape all around them. Mm-hmm. And so it, it struck me that the system was bigger than the people. And that's the conclusion I, I reached at the, end of the, at the end of the book. Now, yeah, you can do that in science fiction as well. I mean, Orson Scott Card did it with uh, Alvin and, and, and that kind of stuff. Well, that's true, using actual American history as using a way actual history. But I, I transposed it mm-hmm. completely. So there's no other connection. The, o- the only thing that connects the Midnight Tides with that story is the idea. There's mm-hmm. nothing else. And obviously, if you're talking about cultural imperialism, cultural, this is something that you've written about. Yeah. Actually, not only in terms of the more recent, more famous books, but from the beginning. Yeah, I, I suppose so, in a sense. Yeah. I mean, as has been saying this weekend, you know, that, that having grown up you know, in Northern Ireland, kind of on, in, the, in, in the rump end of the British Empire, it does kind of give you a, a, sense of, a sensitivity to, to, um, you know, to, to, to matters imperial, in a sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, yeah. But what, what 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 leads you to? I mean, you, you had such a rich mine of material uh, with Northern Ireland, yep. and and from there we go to Brazil and Turkey and um, obviously India. Uh, what what attracts you to that? Well, apart from the travel, um, <laughs> I mean, I am kind of, I mean, I am always have been interested in I mean, I mean, living in a place that's on the margin of Europe. You know, it's on uh-huh. the margin of Britain, on the which is on the margin of Europe. I mean, I'm I'm always interested in, in in countries that are on the margins of 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 science fictional thinking because the science fictional mindset is pretty much you know, it's it's pretty much uh, Western U S European mm. with it with a few giant clanking Japanese robots skulking around in well, the background yeah. for, for the younger generations who, who appreciate such things um, and. But, but the thing is that the thing is that the future. I mean, I, I would argue with William Gibson who says the future is here. It's not just it's just not evenly distributed. Mm. I think, in a sense, it is. Whenever we get some new technological gizmo, whatever, it's everywhere at the same time, and it's and it's a great leveler, in a sense, of of the modern world. It, it is it is leveling out societies and economies on the global scale, and I think taking them back to the position that they were before Western industrialization. You know, when cultures were pretty much on a on a on a par economically and politically, um, mm. which I think is a good thing. So I'm and but what I'm interested in is how those other cultures, you know, use that technology. How you know standard science fiction tropes, which I use in the books. You know, I mean, River Gods is about artificial intelligence. Mm. Brazil is parallel universes. Uh, Turkey is nanotechnology. How those things can be refracted through another another culture, another society. You know, to find their ways of Try and find their ways of using that. He's using that story. Is, did you want to? Because um, I'm I'm curious about how. Um, to go back to the question, of how that works out when you can invent a culture, as you can say, it can be based in something which I don't think anyone reading that novel would recognize that story behind it at all. Mm. So you have the advantage of of being able to morph reality into yeah. something that you invented. Yeah. And you're denying yourself that advantage as a science fiction writer to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first I should preface everything with um, the Malazan world in which all these books occur mm-hmm. is a co-creation between myself and Ian, author Ian Eslevant. Okay. Yeah. So we're both archaeologists, both anthropologists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to address the idea of, well, first, there was an element by which both of us were frustrated by what we saw in fantasy, where we had a sense of a static universe. There was mm-hmm. nothing dynamic in these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there was a, a you know a dark lord rising, it's because he'd been 
you know, imprisoned thousands of years ago and is now rising again. Mm-hmm. And so you got the sense of a, a cycle that actually never leaves itself. It just stays trapped in that yeah. trope. Um, so we were thinking, well, let's have cultures in transition. Um, mm-hmm. And as soon as you think in those terms, the notion of an expanding empire becomes a nice vehicle in which to talk about what happens when two cultures clash. And when one is, is for whatever reason, physically dominant over the other culture. And a lot of our novels, uh, certainly my 10 book series, is all about peripheral peoples who are being impacted mm-hmm. by this expanding culture. Um, so it, it's, yeah, I, 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 I'm certainly in agreement with Ian on, on that idea that it is the, the peripheral cultures that, that are the most fascinating because yeah. there's no way to tell what elements of the dominant culture they're going to take on board and what they're going to simply reject. And mm-hmm. that's why when I talked at the panel about my trip to Mongolia, it's extraordinary to see there are still no fences. You know, and mm-hmm. you drive out from Ulaanbaatar and you start heading north, within three hours you've left highways behind. And once you've gone beyond that, they say there are no roads in Mongolia, only directions. And it's mm-hmm. very true because you mm-hmm. just head out over the, over the steps there's no fences, uh, you'll see horses, you'll see goats, sheep, cattle, uh, they're all around, and you'll see people riding on horses, you'll see uh, gurs, which are their, their sort of their tent systems that they carry around, their nomadic tent systems, but then they're also, they actually de- sort of deforest some hillsides and they start building their, their winter lodge, which is uh, mm-hmm. basically a log cabin. And so all of this is still going on, but you see satellite dishes in the camps. That's what they take. They didn't take anything else. They took the satellite dishes and the phones because that makes sense. And I remember something else that Nettie had had told me about visiting the villages in Nigeria where they're they're still carrying pails of water back, but they all have cell phones. Yes, yes, and it just is astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most most places in Africa have a cell network before they get a a a cable network, and Mm -hmm. it's the way. Mm -hmm. it's it's the way, it's the way they use that technology. I find that kind of exciting. I mean, for me, one of the, one of the one of the pleasures about the kind of the kind of science fiction I write is is I like to know how to get to that future. Um, I, I it's I write quite a lot of of, kind of near future stuff. Mm-hmm. I always like to see how this is connected to the world we live in now. You know what the historical processes are. I, I just like that kind of level of of I mean, because in, because in a sense. You know, there is no kind of tabular rasa shiny future. You know, where everything, everything is, is, you know, where everything is is white, is, is white plastic and chrome. You know, it's always connected to our present and to and to our past. That you know, uh, the present always contains the past and the future, but will we'll always contain our present. And um, it was like in um, Dervish House, uh, uh, Georgios, the the uh, the disgrace, well, not quite disgraced, kind of sidelined economist who's pushed out of his job. You know, he remembers events in the 1980, uh, in the 1980 coup. If I, mm-hmm. if I was writing that book now, I would have events happening last year in Saxon Square. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but you kind of write the book when you write the book. Uh, but I, I, I wanted that kind of sense of continuity between this future and our present. And our I'm, I'm, no, I'm glad you said that because one of the things that frustrates me when I'm talking to my students is the the rage for teenage dystopias now. And I, I enjoyed The Hunger Games. Actually, I thought the first novel was pretty good. I enjoyed the movies. 
I could not convince myself of how you got there from here. Mm, yeah. It just strikes me that this is yeah. this is a kind of imagining a bad place, but the hist- there's no history. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's been a problem in science fiction. I think, um, and, and in a way, it's creating a static future that's similar to what you were talking about, the static mm, worlds yeah. of fantasy. Um, and I remember, I'm, I'm blanking on the title, I remember one of Brian Aldous's novels um, that do- dealt with a completely static society in which nothing changed. And it was, in a way, it was his science fictional parody of a fantasy universe because those are, I mean, you didn't have to worry about how we get there from here in a kind of literal cause and effect sense. Um, but you do have to wonder, is there, is history really a part of any fantasy world. Um, and when you read Tolkien, for example, and then you find out that, okay, this history had been worked out for decades and you've got the entire... None of which is apparent in the narratives themselves. <laughs> yes, yeah. So that's always been a frustration to me. The other thing was interesting about what you were saying, and um, fantasy deriving from science fictional ideas using anthropology and archaeology, as you say, and so that the world makes some kind of historical and geological sense, even. Um, but, but it's not a science fictional world. Had you ever thought about doing that world as a science fictional world? Um, no. I think the main, the main purpose of, of bringing in as much um, notions about social evolution as we could bring in there mm-hmm. was simply to create a, a sense of realism and authenticity to the world Texture, that we yeah. yeah. So, quite often, I remember Cam and I, for whatever reason, we were sharing, well, we were students, and we were mm. sharing a flat in Victoria. And this was, um, it was the year that the first Forgotten Realms uh, gaming package was being mm-hmm. marketed. And um, we'd been gaming a lot, and gaming in the Malazan world, it's basically how we fleshed it out. Uh-huh. But uh, so we picked it up just to see because we were thinking about turning our world prior prior to thinking about novels. We were thinking about okay, can we do this as a game mm. before we got really ambitious? And um, so we brought the box set home, and it was you know nicely wrapped, nicely covered, and all the rest. And unpacked it, and I pu- we pulled out the map, and we both sat there at the dining room table, staring at this map, thinking, <laughs> "This is impossible. This is impossible. You've got rivers that." That are splitting. You've got, which is, mm. it just doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Geographically, it just does not happen. Um, you have mountain ranges in all the wrong places that have no relationship to even the cultures that are occupying them, apart from the really obvious cliche of the dwarves and the mountains. Mm. Um, and so, culturally and anthropologically, none of this made sense. And it really fired us up because we, we wanted something that actually it made sense. It felt visceral. So that you know, you could you could feel. Mm. Uh, that you were in a proper place. And um, so that really was what spurred us in terms of our fantasy. Uh, so in that sense, it, it's, there's a foundation of reality. There's a foundation of at least Western, rational, scientific mm-hmm. thinking underlying all of this and how the cultures have changed and how there's new technology arising. Um, but that was only there so we could play around with the notions of what would happen if magic existed in our world, mm-hmm. and how would it affect social structures, and how would it affect gender-based hierarchies of structure if anybody could get the magic. But the magic also has rules. It has, it has it's, rules, it's, so, yeah. it's, so in a way, it functions like a science. It does function like a science, yeah. yeah. Because if magic has no rules, then it's a new question, where everything is burned to the ground. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, 
the uh, I was talking um, to a friend of our podcast who's been on it, Cecilia Holland, who writes historical novels, which is kind of the third leg in this triad, yes. uh, in a way. And and she was pointing out uh, she was just a fanatical researcher in the sense of historical maps being as unbelievable as some of the maps you're talking oh, yeah. about. I forget which novel it was, but I think it was one of her novels that was set in Turkey. Uh, and she went and looked at the landscape that had been not only mapped but described in various historical accounts and just sim- simply figured out that could not happen. That hill is not there. Mm-hmm. You could not climb that and do this. <laughs> and there are various places that horses can't get to. Um, and it's the sort of thing that uh, may seem, I suppose, to some readers who just want to read the faraway world, sure. may seem nitpicking to do that sort of thing. Yeah, it may well be nitpicking, but like I said, we were coming at it from an anthropological point of view, and, and mm-hmm. we had both worked on many digs and um, been surveying out on, on, you know, in various environments, and um, mm-hmm. we know how to look for sites, and so we think, well, where would people camp? Yeah. yeah. But it's not just that, it's then we have to peel back 10,000 years of ge- geographical environmental change mm. and rebuild the landscape around ourselves to think, well, you know, that, that little hump over there with the gully around, it was an oxbow at some point. Mm. Oxbows are great to camp in. So we go over there and sure enough, you find a site. So um, we just wanted that sense that if you plumbed the history of the Malaysian world, you'd find layers of occupation. And you, you, do you ever lose track? I mean, there's so much, you've got 10, ten volumes of that. Constantly lose track. Yeah, constantly. Well, one of the other things, because uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way science fiction and fantasy aren't really quite that separable anymore, mm-hmm. and the, uh, what you're describing is, is, is a way that science fictional thinking informs a fantasy world, so it's not simply a bunch of maps that you draw and uh, hope it works out. Um, one of our other guests this year, uh, Sophia Samatar, is this year's Crawford winner, spent a lot of time figuring out how the trade routes would work in her imaginary world, which I was very impressed by. Yeah, yeah, we've done yeah, the same. Yeah. It's, it's important. Yeah, I mean, when, when I was doing the Derbyshire House, Google Street View just 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 became available, and that's the most, the most fantastic thing. Right, actually working it. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, can somebody go down that road, or is it, or is it one-way street, or you know, where is the square? So even though the square is fictional, I know exactly where it is, and it's, it's actually just two streets away from Orhan Pamuk's Museum of Innocence, which is actually a real place he's built. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 and it's it's being able to look at places in that mm-hmm. kind of detail. Well, speaking of the Dervish House, since you brought it up, the next thing I was going to get at was how fantasy informs science fiction in a way, or how some kind of fantasy affect informs. And the the thing that sticks in my mind, there are a lot of things that stick in my mind, but the one thing I'd never seen before was was the Mellified Man. Mellified Man. Man, And you must get a lot of questions about the Mellified Man. I do get a lot of questions about the Mellified Man. Yes, people love the Mellified Man, yeah. Um, I stumbled across, I was saying this this morning, session that, that, that it's tiny little things the way they are just it's tiny little things and observations coalescing together and kind of mm-hmm. kind of building up into this kind of mosaic of of, of, of ideas and, and I stumbled across it in uh, Boing Boing it was actually mm. a tiny little re- reference to the Mellified Man I kind of read that I thought that's interesting um, went and looked it up on Wikipedia it's a tiny little article on, on the only real evidence of this it's one of those things that is, is, is quasi-mythological. They may be real, they mm-hmm. may not be real. Um, the only main reference is from a Chinese herbalist traveling in the Middle Ages through Arabia. Uh-huh. 
And, and I thought, that's a great idea. I have to use that. It's far too good to miss. Hold on, can I interrupt? Can you explain the Mellified Man? Oh, yes, please man. do. The Mellified Man is right. In, in, um, this, this may take a while. <laughs> in, in, uh, in medieval Arabia, when a gentleman reached the end of his life and wanted to do something useful after his death, he would start eating honey. And he would eat nothing but honey for days or weeks on end. Until basically he died of a massive sugar rush, <laughs> basically. But by then he was sweating honey, he was excreting honey. Wow. Yeah, and basically his entire incisor filled with honey. So, so he would die, and they'd place him in a stone coffin. This is all very un-Islamic. Dodging. They put him in a stone coffin, fill that with honey, sealed it with lead, and put like a decant date on it, say 100, 100, 200 years from then. And the idea is that when you open the coffin, what you have is basically human, a human confection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was, um, yeah, I've got a story about this. Yeah. Uh, basically, is um, yeah, and they, they would take out the body of the malefied man and break it up, and basically it was a cure for all ills. Uh, any, you know, you could rub it on or you could eat it. And in the spirit of inquiry, I have a large kilner jar with a leg of lamb. Banned in honey. You know? <laughs> really? <laughs> I was That's going my to little experiment to do some yeah. just to see what happens. So, yeah. It's one of those stories that, that, that once you find it, it's far too good not to. You use. can't. Yeah. It, but doesn't it sound like something a fantasy writer would just play? I mean, it's just it's yeah. a great story. Um, but I guess technically it's not impossible. Have you ever checked with a biologist or? Uh, I, well, not, I, I should actually. Yeah, but, um, the thing is, I mean, one of the characters in the book, you know, go, you know, goes in search. She's, she's offered was a, a million euro to find a, to find a malefied man. The whole thing is actually a complex, mm-hmm. a complex well, yeah. smuggling scam or some other. Um, and she goes in this kind of Dan Brown style caper, only better written. <laughs> <laughs> he says meow um, through through Istanbul's archaeology. But yeah, uh, but yeah, but as to whether it's. I think the problem is killing yourself but eating honey, I, I suspect, might be the problematic bit. But, but once you've actually... Yeah, honey never breaks down. No, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Egyptian honey jars. Yeah, I mean, Alexander the Great's body was brought back in a, in a, in a coffin filled with honey. So, so and Burmese monks, uh, uh, Burmese abbots were always buried in coffins filled with honey. So there is a... Oh, absolutely, yeah, because yeah, it, it's yeah. anaerobic. So yeah, yeah, nothing yeah. breaks down once it's completely yeah. immersed. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So I shall report on my leg of lamb. Find out what happens. We will get a full report on that. Yes, yes if, if I die, think about it. <laughs> I did it in the name of science fiction. But in terms of what I was talking about, historical fiction, that's kind of a historical fiction leg of this. Where yes, yeah. It follows the science fiction rule of being, well, not quite impossible, probably not impossible, but um, not very likely, I don't think. No, probably not. But but it's it's one of those things that's kind of too good not you know, yeah too good yeah. not to use. That's kind of a secret history thing. There was a writer who I admired who um, I don't know if you've read him. Edward Whittemore had written a series of novels called the Jerusalem Quartet, and he was an interesting. He was some kind of a CIA agent or, or maybe even OSS. I don't know exactly how. And he'd written these novels about. Uh, mostly about the secret history of Jerusalem. The the most famous one is called Jerusalem Poker, and it was based on something he had heard about a poker game which had been going on for 40 years in a hidden 
a back of a bar somewhere in Jerusalem yeah. for control of the entire Middle East. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. 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 Far too good to investigate too yeah. closely. That's exactly. <laughs> you don't, you, you, but, um, but then there's a point at which I guess you can't invent, Ian, but you can't. Yeah. Steve? Um, yeah, but I still draw from, I draw from the ideas of science. I mean, when I'm, my main interest, I, I tend to read um, nonfiction when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. And right now, it, it has been primarily, there's been a whole slew of books with the titles, variations on why are we the last hominids left on the planet, you know, um, humans, mm-hmm. homo sapiens sapiens. And because there's been a lot of discoveries, uh, new discoveries regarding Neanderthals and uh, Denisovans, mm-hmm. Homo erectus, um, all actually exiting Africa, well, Neanderthals form, well. seem to be very much European. But um, certainly earlier waves of hominids leaving Africa mm-hmm. and, and populating other, other places. Um, and so I read that stuff, and I'm, I'm often very frustrated with some of the assumptions in the science. So I mm-hmm. play around with that in my books. I've got, you know, I've got versions of Homo erectus, for example. Mm-hmm. And they're not savannah dwelling at all. They live mm-hmm. on the coast, because where else would you live? Right? Your food supply yep. is, is endless. There's mm-hmm. far fewer predators. Um, you can move along the coastline and end up in another continent without knowing it, which is obvious what happened mm-hmm. um, all the way through. But archaeologists have this weird notion of it's one of the few sciences where um, evidence or evidence or absence of evidence is mm-hmm. evidence of absence mm-hmm. because they say, "Well, this is a million and a half years ago. They can't have boats." Well, of course they have boats. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> because they're getting out to places like some of the islands of Indonesia, you know, 70 miles stretch of deep water. Mm. They're not clinging to branches as a family. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. shark infested water. So they've got boats. But so I, I feel perfectly free to actually say, yeah, you know, these characters have boats. Mm-hmm. And they live on the coast. Um, archaeologically, we can't prove any of that. And we can't even find them on the coast for the most part because the coastline there. Uh, walking along is offshore. You know, the, the seas are much higher. Yeah, yeah that's true. So there's yeah. no way to find it. So I, I'll, I'll take tons of ideas from here and think about them and then mess with them and, and sort of regurgitate them in the fantasy world. How do your readers respond to that? Do they recognize... Utter indifference. <laughs> all that effort. All yeah, all that effort. All that effort, all that But it keeps, me, it keeps me entertained. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, we do kind of write for our own amusement as well, oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. to a certain extent. I would hope so. I, mean, I would hope that you're enjoying what you're doing. But uh, one of the things that uh, oh, the Brian Aldiss novel I was thinking of was the Molassia Tapestry. Oh yes, and yes, yes. it's one of the few. It's well, it's it's not really a science fiction novel, but it's one of the few novels I know who takes as its subject stasis, an unchanging, which stri- strikes me as a really challenging thing to write yeah, about, yeah, yeah. Um, because you're talking about yeah, you, you want to you, you're both writing about changing cultures and and rapid change, but then when you imagine a culture that just doesn't change and then try to figure out how do you, how do you form a narr- narrative yes, around yeah, that? Yeah. Where's the uh, drama? Where's well, the where's the, exactly. Um, and yet it seems, I think you're right, a lot of fantasy novels seem to be arenas for game playing. Uh, yes. And, and yeah. not much more than that. And to be honest, some space opera does the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But um, the kind of research that you're talking about strikes me as being the kind of research, ironically, that I've seen in Paul McCauley's novels about the outer planets, and because he's taken the latest yes. Cassini, all, all the information we have, and maybe to his uh, 
maybe to the frustration of some readers, he just loves describing what the you know, geography of Callisto must be like. <laughs> and, he's, and he's probably as right as he can be, yeah. but, um, but sometimes it goes on longer than, <laughs> uh, than, than the reader is willing to go with it. But that strikes me as one of the areas where science fiction and fantasy do the same things, only using different tools. Yeah, once they've yeah, yeah. got the yes. basic kinds of reasons. We don't do feasts, we do surface terrain. Kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> it's describing the food of life. The other thing, um, since uh, I'm just um, making things up as we go along, um, is I, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about, speaking of worlds in which you can do anything, you're doing yeah. a ter- series of parallel worlds yes, now. Yeah, Main character whose name is even Everett. Everett, yeah. uh, and always a clue in the title. <laughs> and I, it, it's interesting to me, and I don't, Steve, if you've ever written anything like young adult fiction. No. Uh, but one of the problems, which has not been a problem in this series so far, but may be a problem in another ongoing series, which I will not name, that also involves infinite parallel worlds, is the danger of creating a world in which you can do anything and yes. therefore nothing matters. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I mean, that's why I've confined most of the action. Well, in a sense, the main actors are the nine or ten, you know, worlds of the plenitude. Mm. You know, they are the kind of the main players. There, there, there are there are billions of possible universes out sure. there, but but routine contact with them is impossible, um, except for for Everett, who has the infundibulum, the map of mm. all the parallel universes. So I want to keep it as kind of tightly focused as possible, without. Um, yeah, yeah. Without too much of that kind of uh, what's that show sliders, you know, you know, where, where you know where it's, where it's different parallel universe of the week. Oh, look, there's you doing something else. Well, that's different. the thing. Yeah, and, and kind of, you know, it's. Um, I do kind of. I, I the thing I liked about sliders was the kind of the the, the kind of lost in space element of it. You know, that mm. each week, you know, they get whisked on to another parallel universe. But I also. But I also kind of like the idea of having a certain degree of control over it. You know, you know that, that isn't you know everything is possible. You know, you know here's a world where everything's made of tissue paper or whatever. <laughs> you know, that there's a certain rigor to it. And it's interesting you're saying about different hominids because mm-hmm. um, I have the last two books in the series out of market at the moment. Uh, I guess the last two is going to wrap it up in five. Mm-hmm. And uh, book four you know, is I think it's Earth Seven. I think is the one. Which has like five different species of humans all cool. kind of coexisting in a kind of mm-hmm. kind of regency era technology. <laughs> it's <laughs> very, <laughs> very prescient because it, that, that's what's yeah. being thought about yeah. now. There's yeah. been a whole sea change yeah. in, in human evolution to yeah. realize that we coexisted with multiple yes, yeah. other versions yeah. of us. Mm-hmm. The problem I, I'm writing a whole essay on, on this right now. Um, mm, really? Yeah, the extinction yeah. of common sense. In the <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because. It is the only science. Um, well, it has this weird assumption that skull size, so brain capacity, yes. relates to intelligence. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't apply amongst modern hum- humans because we have gotten rid of the whole notion of phrenology, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's racist. It's clearly racist. But as soon as we go back in time, we're all back to phrenology. We're looking at the skulls. Exactly. The insides of the skulls. We're mapping things and we're saying, well, this is smarter than this one, and smarter yeah. than this one. And I'm ju- I just throw up my hands because this is, this is absurd thinking, right? It's, mm. it's utterly yeah, absurd. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the big arguments regarding, you know, The Hobbit? The, oh, yes, 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 yeah. Yeah. the big arguments against um, 
these ones, these particular creatures being um, capable of technology is that the stone tools found uh, with these uh, bones are actually mm -hmm. rather well made. But the skulls are, in terms of brain capacity, not much larger than the chimpanzee. So they couldn't possibly have... They couldn't possibly yeah. this, this, What kind it's, of thinking is this? Yeah, it's not yeah, science. Yeah, 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 I don't exactly. know what it is. I, I think there's... There, actually, uh, there's a novel by Ted Kosmatka based about the, the, the hobbits of the... I forget where they're found, or what the actual name is. Uh, um, well, Homo for Floriensis. Because uh, of Flor Flores, yeah. the island of Floriensis. Uh, and he um, very cleverly set... Actually, it was a short story... Uh, initially, which he expanded the novel, but he set the novel in a world in which uh, creationism is ascendant. So he's taking the question from that point of view and sort of looking at the same issue that, that you were just describing from a fundamentalist point of view. And saying, so we've got Darwin has been completely you know, discredited in this world. And I thought that's an interesting, clever way of, uh, of reversing perspective. And I think reversing yeah. perspective is one thing that fantastic literature of all sorts does better than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. absolutely. And I did have to ask you, since you mentioned the infant Libyan, because I've been wanting, yes. did that come from Vonnegut? Uh, it's, yes, it did. Also, yeah. but, I mean, I actually, got it di I actually got it directly from John Crowley's little big, where's an infant Libyan, but, but, he, but he got it. He got it from, he got Vonnegut. Got it from yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, right, exactly. so, yeah. classic infant Libyan. The Sirens of Titan, which is still my favorite Vonnegut mm. novel, actually. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> So, going back to the question of how readers respond to this sort of thing, I mean, uh, and, and when you've got an ongoing popular series, um, and I've talked to George Martin about this, and the, what happened to George Martin a few years ago is now famous. Are you scared of your readers? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I finished the 10-book series. Oh, that's so, not okay. But yeah, you had that took a long time to yeah, do it, and during yeah. that period, there were people probably who knew more about it than you did. Most of them. <laughs> I mean, the weird thing with my series appears to be that it survives very well in rereads. And so mm -hmm. I, a lot of my fans are saying, well, I'm reading it for the fifth time or the sixth time. And I, my jaw drops. Like, I don't go back and read this stuff. Um, and yeah, mm -hmm. they know it far better than, better than I do. Have you had, ever had this question, either one of you? I was uh, at a reading once when uh, Doris Lessing was in Chicago. And, um, she, somebody in the audience, some young man, maybe 27 years old, asked her about a particular short story, the title of which I forget. And, and his, it was one of these questions where it goes on for about seven minutes asking the question, <laughs> describing everything that happened in yep. his life and his entire attitude toward gender change because of the story. And her response was, thank you very much, that's so generous of you, I don't actually remember that story at all. I had, I had exactly, <laughs> exactly in France a few years ago, it was at Utopia Island Nantes, and they just published King, King of Morning, Queen of Day in French. Mm -hmm. uh, they got a really good reception one an award in the shape of a giant plastic cat. <laughs> and somebody asked me a question about the ending of the book, and I had to say, I'm afraid I do not remember <laughs> what happened at the end of the book. Could you remind me? And they did. So, oh, yeah. Once they remind you, then, is it, then it all comes flooding back. But I, I was completely off guard. It's my, I just wibble, wibble, wibble. There, there have been I, times when I've been frantically going back to, say, book one or book two, right? To mm -hmm. get a description or uh, to just confirm if my memory was actually matching the event that I'd written. Mm -hmm. And I would be reading away and I'll, I'll stop at one point and say, you know, who the fuck wrote this? <laughs> it's, it's like, I don't recognize this stuff. I don't recognize yeah, the yeah, sentences. Absolutely. Sentence yeah, structure yeah. pattern yeah, yeah. It works. It seems new. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that has to be a, 
a common experience, though, because the, for the reader, this is new. For the reader, King of Morning, Queen of Day was a brand new book, yeah, and how, yeah, yeah. so it must be a brand new book for you, too. Yeah, mm. yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I went back and had a look at it, and the bits, the bits I read, and I thought, I don't remember writing that, but it's not bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah th- th- there are whole stories I've, I've forgotten I've written. Somebody asked me one about, uh, what was it, Best and the Rest of James Joyce? And I had to say, I thought I dreamt writing that story. I didn't know I'd actually written it. <laughs> that raises another interesting issue, which I find interest, interesting in dealing with genre fans who sometimes don't read anything but genre fiction. And that is if you make an allusion to, to Joyce or, 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 or Tolstoy or yeah. Proust, um, are you just losing your audience there? Do they... Are they just nothing but fantasy readers, or because when you're talking about archaeology, I would think histor- I would think historical fiction readers would like the, the Mazalon series. Um, um, yeah, I get a lot of responses from archaeologists who, who like the series. Uh-huh. But I did write one novella called Crackpot Trail, mm-hmm. which actually is answering the question of what would it have been like if. Um, oh, if Burton. Richard C. Richard had mm. written um, Canterbury Tales. <laughs> and I just took it off from there. And so that, the whole voice, everything about the story, and basically the premise of the story is um, there's a, a, a group of somewhat pilgrims, but artists, and they're all heading to a city that has this annual, mm. this annual Century's Best Artist Award. <laughs> and uh, amongst them there's a critic as well. Well, they, they pick up a critic on the way. Um, and then there's a number of um, knights who are actually chasing down somebody. So they're all on the same trail. Mm-hmm. And normally there, there's uh, way, wayside camps where you can, because you're crossing a desert, where you get you know everything you need. Every, they're waiting to supply you for this pilgrimage. Um, but there's been a terrible drought, and there's, there's no camps. And so mm-hmm. they're out crossing this desert. And um, so the guys with the swords, one of them, who's a... Uh, uh-huh your classic paladin knight, decides that um, they're going to have to start eating people because <laughs> my horse is far too valuable, right? So, and then they, they look to the artist and they say, well, each of you will tell stories in the night at, at the yeah, fireside. Right. Yeah. And whoever's story sucks, we eat. Right? So, <laughs> so this is the premise that runs through the whole That's a great story. idea. Yeah. So, so, it's a sort of Scheherazade and burger for yeah, it. Yeah, it, it is, it is. And so I just, I had absolute laugh ride writing it. Yeah. Um, it's 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 resoundingly hated. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I well I I don't know. If, I mean there are things I there's things I learned from reading fiction. I mean, one of the things I learned from Brazil was I didn't realize that the 1950 World Cup <laughs> was the most important thing that ever happened. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes I'm uh, not going to win this one either. Right, exactly right. I'm afraid not. But, <laughs> uh, but I remember when years ago. Um, Philip Jose Farmer's Riverworld series, which mm-hmm. begins with Richard Burton as the main character, yes. was being um, adapted for what turned out to be Australian television. And, but they were doing it for American audiences. And Richard Burton just got lost because they basically mm-hmm. said yeah. nobody has yeah. ever heard of it. Yeah. No American TV audience knows anything about history. They kept Mark Twain because yeah. he's kind of an iconic figure. But basically the whole point of that series got erased because there weren't enough historical figures that a television audience could even recognize. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alice Liddell, you know, was one of the characters in yes. there. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, well, I just, I fell right into the language of Sir Richard Burton. I just, I, I'm, I'm very much a chameleon. I, I can mm-hmm. read yeah. George MacDonald Fraser's 
pirates. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, uh, if I want to write a letter, I'm writing pirate, yeah. pirate speak, um, or his Flashman series. You know, the, the cadences mm -hmm. they're they're so well written that the cadences just they just slip into the brain, and your brain remolds and sort of spews it all back out. So I was re I was reading yeah. uh, uh, mm -hmm. Thousand One Nights and all the rest, and I, the voice just it just came out. Mm -hmm. and I was just channeling this and sitting back. Does that ever happen to you? So, yeah, sometimes it was. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, to go back to, to King and Queen of Day, you know, uh -huh. I mean, the second bit is full of Irish literary jokes, most of which people don't get. There's this mm. bits of Beckham, there's bits of Joyce in there, and, and, and I found I could do James Joyce pretty easily, actually. He's, 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 he's quite easy to imitate, and Beckett's great to imitate as well, actually. There's, there's a two oh, tramps, Tyrese isn't on Zag. It's um, almost a mental game, because once you're yeah. doing it, you're no longer responsible. It's yeah. that guy. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's the way it's yeah. Yeah. But I assume you're doing it for yourself too, because you just can't uh, make assumptions about readers anymore. No. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever talked to any writer who admits to dumbing down texts, but I sometimes wonder if some may feel the need to do that, uh, especially if you have a massive readership that uh, that, that that wants the same thing, a ten volume series. Um, there must be people who just want volume two again, again and again and yeah. again. Oddly enough, um, I, I made sure these were each sort of plotted in their own way, so uh -huh. no cliffhangers. It's kind yeah, of a contained yeah. novel each way. Mm -hmm. It only has actually shown up now when I'm writing the, the trilogy prequel, because they were mm -hmm. all expecting the same as the Malazan world. But, I mean, those ten novels, that's three million words. Over That's a huge. Years. I was, uh, in terms of stylistically, I had exhausted that style. I utterly exhausted it. Yeah. Um, so I, I went in a completely different, uh, more contemplative direction with this trilogy, which is actually a prequel that goes way back mm -hmm. um, in the same world. Um, and it is, uh, yeah, a lot of people have complained that it's not the same as in the last ten books. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, when I before I started that song on the Avernus gig. I, mean, I read quite a lot of YA, and I found I didn't like the predominant voice, which was kind of present tense, first person. It just sounded, it just, it just sounded asinine, and um, kind of me, me, me all the time. So, and oddly for me, they're they're actually all past, they're actually all past tense narratives. So the uh, for the grown up books, that I still kind of the boundary at the moment, I'm still reverting to kind of kind of um, present tense. Mm. Yeah, I sort of like the immediacy of it actually. I think because the kind of the, the kind of books I use it for are, you know, places where places where you, where you need that up close immediacy all the time. You know, that it gets things in your face and that's that, mm -hmm. that, that the setting demands. But I see a lot of present tense narratives that don't need the present tense. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that becomes it may be a writing program affectation because it seems to me this is happening on a lot of. Uh, in, Literary MFA short fiction is mm -hmm. uh, um, this kind of momentary description. In in a sense, this is not new. In a sense, Rogrier was doing things like this, you know, forty years ago mm -hmm. with a new novel, where you um, write. I remember reading Jalousy was he will describe the angle of the shadow of the sun as it moves over the forty-five minute period, and pretty much describing every minute of that um, in a novel that. Is 150 pages long. <laughs> Virtually nothing happens, but you're certainly in that moment uh, yes. for a long yeah. time. 
was it Philip Pullman kind of launched a Jeremiah against against uh, use of present tense and models? Well, I, I only find it very irritating with um, documentaries, historical documentaries. All, all the all the narrators oh. on television. Oh, they do that. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, all yeah. present tense. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, no, yeah. it's not present tense. This no, happened yeah. a long yeah, time ago. Cut it out. But that's that's a sense I think of again appealing to an audience mm -hmm. which is um, uh, increasingly. I don't. I, I'm going to sound like a cranky old guy now. Um, maybe not in. Uh, I don't want to say not literate, but certainly not well read. And when you talk mm -hmm. about, you, you mentioned Beckett, for example. I don't know. Um, how far that illusion is going to go with most readers. Yeah. I don't know it makes much difference. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those who get it, get it. Those who don't, won't miss it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, as, as long as it doesn't become too dependent on yes. the, uh, <laughs> and that sort of a, a thing. Well, what do you... Uh, here's a question that I know you always get. What do you read? Uh, everybody that I know in the field, when I'm talking about fans again, starts with the assumption that everybody reads the same thing. And to be honest, most fans read way more science fiction oh, and yeah. fantasy than any science fiction and fantasy writers I know. Yeah. yeah. So what do you read? Um, Nonfiction, as I say, uh, that's where one of my interests are. Uh, I tend to read science fiction. Mm -hmm. Because it, 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 there's, no, there's no potential risk of bleed over. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah. I read a lot of science fiction. Um, anything else? Years ago I read virtually everything I can get my hands on, but uh, as I get older, I'm, mm. I'm slowing down. Um, uh, it, it's hard enough to, to write. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. 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 Ian? Yeah, uh, likewise, I read lots of, lots of non-fiction as well. Um, usually in areas connected to what I'm writing at the moment, but, but a little bit removed from it, you know, because I, I want that kind of to spark ideas, I mean, mm. to spark gap. Yeah. And I don't read much science fiction, but I've, I've, I've picked up horror at the moment. I'm going through a horror phase. Oh. There's a guy, a uh, British writer called Adam Neville, actually. I, I really enjoy his stuff um, because, because I'm interested in how it works, horror, you know, how it generates the, that particular unique effect uh, that interests me. I think the effect is the right word for it because we've had a number of discussions, including here at ICFA, about whether horror is a genre yes. or a mode. Because obviously there are horror scenes in most major fantasy novels mm. and a lot of science fiction novels that films like Alien can fit into mm -hmm. um, um, horror. And I think, one of, again, one of Brian Aldiss's arguments was simply that that's essentially a technique. Um, mm. But there's another critic who had this idea uh, film critic named uh, I'm going to say I think it's Linda Badley but I might be and she described horror as one of two or three of what she called body genres and the yes. body genres are works of especially in cinema but it works for literature that create a physical response on the body uh, horror being one of them pornography being the most obvious yeah. but even more obvious than that being comedy uh, you know you know you've written successful comedy on stage when you get a laugh. And, and, and I'm not exactly sure where she went with that, but it suggested to me that um, all those are modes that any writer can use in any given work. They're sure. not genres. Mm. Um, so horror as a genre is something, I think, which is largely an artifact of a market. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. in a sense, a lot of horror novels don't horrify. They create fear. Or some mm -hmm. other emotion, but, but, um, but that is different from a sense of horror, which, which, you know, which is a, 
Well, somebody uh, was saying that that's one of the reasons they don't think the um, Saw movies, the the the, the dis- yes. they aren't really horror movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're uh, Grand Guignol. They're they're, yeah. they're disgusting movies, but there's no fear in them. Yes, uh, yeah. there's there's nothing but pain. Yeah, there's only revulsion kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I mean, I did watch them. And I just thought, why am I watching this? I mean, I'm not, I'm not enjoying fear the way that you kind of do with, you know, do mm-hmm. with a good horror, a good horror film, a good horror story. Right. You know, you're, you're scared, but you're enjoying. But this is just, you know, I'm not actually enjoying what's going on. No. And, and and if I did, I think I would be a terrible person. <laughs> Well, the, it's a difference between what Hitchcock said, the, 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 the difference between fearing what's going to happen and knowing what's happening. And all you're seeing in these films is what's happening. Yes, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yes, it's, yes, it's the thing you don't see. You know? it's, it's the ghost that you only hear is always scarier than the one you see. Mm-hmm. But mainstream fiction, neither one of you read much of that? Uh, a bit, a bit. Yeah, I used to, used to read a lot of it. Because one of the writers who I've discovered, I think, has become one of the major influences on science fiction, especially space opera kind of science fiction in the last 20 years, may very well be Patrick O'Brien. Yes, Mm -hmm. very much, Uh, yeah. Because people want to create that atmosphere. And again, that's somebody, the texture, the, you know, there's something utterly believable, and the cadence of the prose is very distinctive in Patrick O'Brien novels. And um, they are my friend Charles Brown, the founder of Locus, had a complete set of Patrick O'Brien first editions and read them exactly as though he would read a space opera and got exactly the same kind of play. And Flashman novels mm-hmm. have some of that same feeling. Flashman is a lot more fun than reading Ryder Haggard, for example. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which so. I grew up reading. But did you go back and read him? Uh, no. no. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things where um, what uh, Joe Walton calls the suck fairy yeah. Oh, right, yes. Uh, you, you go back and read something that really meant a lot to you when you were a, an adolescent or even in your 20s and 30s and find out, how could I possibly have read, gotten, my, gotten my way through this back back then? I mean, I mean I'm rereading all Toby Anson's Moon Troll books at the moment, and the magic's still there, but it's slightly different from the way I remember it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not quite soft fairy, it's more like the kind of... Yes, the, the bloom has gone off at some I suspect it's me. I, I, I've talked to a lot of people, and myself included, who would reread something for years and years and years until it's used up. And I remember reading, mm. in my case, it was T.H. White's The Once and Future King, uh, which was the first Arthurian thing I read when I got into college. I read Mark Arthur and that sort of thing. And I must have, between the ages of 12 and 15, read that five or six times. And then, I, th- then you start seeing the machinery working in it. And you start seeing the games he's playing with Mallory in it that don't quite work. And I don't know if I want to read it now or not, mm-hmm. because I think. Yeah. I, but I've talked to other people who had that same sense of not necessarily with that book, but just being a book that you could return to and return to and return to until you couldn't. Yeah. And then suddenly, it's not. It's yeah. It's not the suck fairy, but it's. No, it's, it's yeah. It's yeah. It's 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 it's, it's, it's some of the whole hum fairies. I guess that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I tried to reread the Lord of the Rings and. It, couldn't get through it. Actually, I, I I couldn't actually get out of the Shire. It was it just they couldn't get out of the Shire. Right? Yeah, yeah, well, no. yeah, yeah. Just oh, no. Well, somebody was saying earlier today uh, that if you don't read it by the time you're 15, it's never going to do that for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think there's something. that was me yesterday. Was oh, that was you yesterday? <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, that was all right. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard yeah. this. All yeah. right, yeah, that's why that's why I thought I'd heard it. Before. <laughs> um, and I think that may be true of a lot of classes. I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I think there are things that when you're younger you have patience for. 
that I wouldn't. I mean, uh, back when Ballantine was publishing the adult fantasy series, and you're discovering all the stuff that you've never read before, and I was the first time I read um, um, E.R. Edison, for example, and uh, it was E.R. Edison. I thought was great. I liked the Worm or Boris and mm-hmm. the Fist Dinner and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. I don't know if I could get through it now. Uh, the one thing that even defeated me back then was William Morris. You try to read one of his romances, they're, they sound great, um, but that's about it. <laughs> it's, it's, um, but uh, again, there's, a, there, there's that sense of discovering everything for the first time. Yeah. And well, I do go back to classics. I mean, at least classics for me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, John Gardner's Grendel, I'll go back. Mm-hmm. Just to be reminded of, of the beauty of language and what he can do with rhythm and all the rest. Um, short timers, just a pastor, and mm-hmm. didn't, didn't live in a lot, long enough, I think, to become as famous as he probably could have. Which is uh, the Kubrick film, also. It's yeah. the Kubrick film. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is the only Vietnam War novel I've ever seen that has a vampire. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's very surreal at that point. Uh, where only the peace symbol on, the, on Joker's helmet actually is what keeps the vampire away. It's <laughs> very clever. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I read that years ago, and I'm, yeah, it's coming back to me now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it just suddenly just goes very yes, surreal, yeah. and then you're back to normal. Uh, but again, that's voice. And the voice is fantastic mm. in that book. Um, so I'll read things for specific things. You know, if I, if I need that sort of boost, and, and just to be reminded of the wonder of language, yeah. and I'll go back. I mean, I, I mean, I've never read any Lovecraft until five years ago, and I, I bought a big collected edition of Lovecraft and read it, mm-hmm. and I couldn't see what the fuss was about. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I must have come uh, to it at the wrong time. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, it's not, yeah so <laughs> I, it's interesting because uh, one of the editions, the Library of America edition of Lovecraft stories, was edited by Peter Straub, who had kind of the same experience. I mean, he grew up reading. Of course, mm-hmm. he's a horror writer, so it's part of his tradition. And uh, he convinced me that you can go through multiple phases with Lovecraft. There's the initial discovery phase is, wow, this is really scary, and these are really big words. And then the next time, I, I went through this for uh, oh, three or four years, I would pick him up and just start giggling. <laughs> this, is, this is so bad and so overdrawn, and not, and, and there, how many adjectives for Chthonic and the Sumerian and the darkness can he come up with? Um, and then, you get past that and you think, okay, this works if you come at it from the right angle. You have to suppress the giggle reflex. And and suddenly I can read him now and I can still get that effect. Um, and it, 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 it takes passing through that. I, mean, I, um, I don't know if there are any other writers I've had quite that reaction to, but uh, there are, I mean, there are people, if you pick up um, Edgar Rice Burroughs today, uh, there's not much you can do with it. Really. <laughs> Oddly enough, I was about to bring that up because uh, I grew up reading. I, I collected everything, mm-hmm. basically because of the Frank Rosetta covers. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But I can. I can't. I've got a first edition of Tarzan of the Apes, mm. and I can actually go back and read that one. And yeah, you put aside the racism, you put aside the fact you knew nothing about Africa, and there is something. There's something wonder, wondrous in that book, and um, I can actually go back and read it. Mm. Hmm. Only well. But books one, two, and three are basically one giant novel. It's one story. But I tend only to read the first one. And what about The Princess of Mars? Did you ever try those? Yeah, I have tried it. Um, I got maybe by the third book, and that's it. I mean, I I tried rereading all my old E. E. Doc Smith ones a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Suck fair, I'm afraid. (laughs) 
apart, as, apart from the wonderful things about corrugating glass filling all sorts of circumambient space and mm. all that, it, 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 it is a bit the, the giggle factor in the fact that yeah, they just the magic wasn't there. Mm. It's, 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 it's kind of sad because I, I love them. I remember just devouring them back to back when I was about 12, 13 years old. A friend used to buy them, give them to me, and I roared through them. Well, maybe that's why. Well, I, I guess there are double meanings to the word classic. I mean, we can go back and read. I can go back and read Dracula, which I did not long ago. Mm. It, it works. It, it works as well as it did yeah. the first time. Um, but these uh, things like Doc Smith, I remember reading, and thinking, how could I even think this was science fiction? Uh, is, there's <laughs> nothing. There's nothing in it that we that is connected to anything that I later thought yeah, of as, yeah. as, as science fiction. So it's. Uh, um, it's always a challenge in a place like this where we have academics giving papers on ancient, sometimes almost forgotten texts. I always am hearing about something. I should go back and read that again. I should probably, uh, I should check out Theodore Sturgeon, who actually holds up pretty well. Mm. Uh, Bradbury, some Bradbury, <laughs> until Bradbury started corning the market on exclamation points, and there were seven sentences ending with exclamation points at the beginning of the story. Those are hard to take, but... Uh, the ones that I read as a kid, many of which were horror stories, things like The Small Assassin, are yeah, very yeah, effective. Yeah, yeah, great story. Well, I, I, I don't know, I, I, I tend to be much more forgiving with the stuff that I grew up with. And so if I go back to read it, I read it out of a nostalgia for discovery and, and a sense of wonder. That's a great phrase. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly, I think, what I'm looking for when I try that again. Mm -hmm. uh, and th th there's a point at which you realize that past a certain age, that's never going to quite happen again. No, exactly. But you guys keep writing anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you must have both had people who just said something like that young man said to Doris Lesson, that this changed my life. This has given me a new perspective. And even if it's maybe annoying at the time because the person dogs you for the rest of the convention, <laughs> It has to be really gratifying to have changed somebody's life. It can be actually rather, um, sort of, it can send a shiver through you because um, I've been getting, I've gotten a couple of uh, emails in the last couple of years from um, people who are ex military mm -hmm. and they're back from um, uh, overseas postings, usually in Af Afghanistan oh. or somewhere like that. One individual um, had was recovering from an IED and had had brain damage. And he said the only thing that kept him going was, was my books. Mm. And um, the other one was actually, I, I have a sense, was, was actually fairly suicidal. Mm. And um, so I tried to write back ASAP. Um, oh, yeah. But he never responded. So, um, but he said that that's what was keeping him going. And, and he actually quoted a passage from Forge of Darkness, my new really? trilogy. And said, this is exactly, so this is very recent. Yeah, this is exactly how I feel. Wow. But it was from the point of view of a character, an old soldier who said, you know, we are we are no longer relevant. And so I got really alarmed, oh, yeah. really disturbed. Yes, yes. Um, because the character is basically saying we can come back into the world of peace, but we are we are um, we are standing much closer to death than anyone around us and we know it. And so that sense is just holy cow. You know, um, yeah, if I could, if I could I actually could have reached through to him. Um, um, well, you might have. Maybe. Yeah. I've never quite had that because um, I tend not to interact that closely with readers in that way. 
I've had people come up and tell me I'm telling me they love stuff, but, but I haven't changed any lives. Well, I've got stevenerickson.com. Yeah, so you've got to One of the things you must be getting asked all the time, though, Ian, is how people in Turkey and Brazil yes. and India, yes. uh, because... This very morning. <laughs> one of the things that comes up is, uh, in every academic conference, this is the cultural appropriation yes, thing. Yes, yes, <coughs> And how can you do this? And um, it's what writers do. It's what writers it do. I mean, yes. Yes, we are, yes, we are by nature immoral creatures, you know. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> see, I, I come no. from an anthropological point of view, and I, I don't see it as immoral in the least. Yeah. You know, it, for example, um, certainly in Canada, there's there's that issue of cultural appropriation is, is a very mm. relevant topic mm. with, with um, First Nations peoples. Um, but I grew up in Winnipeg, which has the largest First Nations population, urban population mm. in all Canada. <coughs> They are as part of my growing up, my life experience. Yeah. Like their yeah. presence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then as an archaeologist, I, I worked alongside them. And so to actually then turn around and say, well, I'm going to write a story about the Saskatchewan prairies or whatever, and pull them out yeah. is actually yeah. Yeah. such an injustice because they are, they are part of the reality. And so to suddenly mm -hmm. become put blinkers on and blind yourself, you're like, you're smudging the scenes. You're blurring like they do on television when tits show up and that kind of thing. Mm. Right? What a horrible thing to do. I think that's true, and I think it's not necessarily... Um, I mean, we were saying yesterday that uh, you know, there's really no such thing as post-colonial literature because it's yeah. still colonial, yeah. and I think yeah, yeah. the idea of cultural appropriation is something that... You're right, every writer does that when you're writing... You're, because you... Otherwise, you're writing completely to some kind of inside group that... Uh, yes, yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, you write... Uh, you write gay characters, you write Native American characters. If you're a male writer, you write female characters. If you're a female writer, you, yeah. write, you write transgender characters. Uh, and to some extent, if that's part of the world that you're portraying, you're distorting the world more by leaving... Absolutely. To me, it's a question of integrity. I mean, I, mm -hmm. have, I have to... If I'm going to sort of draw from reality, I have to make note of everything I see. And to deliberately make, not make note of something I see is a mm -hmm. huge injustice. I mean, if we end up just writing about what we know, that off frequently isn't isn't writing worth reading. I mean, I mean, I mean, all writing is reaching out to something beyond our experience mm. in some way mm. or other. You know, it's 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 taking those observations and influences and pushing them somewhere else. You know, into you know, to other people. So it's it's, it's a, it, I think we're always writing from what we know to what we don't know. I mean, that's, that, that, yeah, that, mm. that, that's the nature of the imagination. It, it, it's, it's to push us into what we don't know, you know to imagine it. Yeah. I, I wrote a hockey story, of all things. A hockey that story? Ice hockey to you. Yeah, but yes, yeah. I was going to say. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Is that a law in Canada? You have to write one hockey <laughs> story? <laughs> well, yeah. But, um, and it's all about a goaltender who um, is never going to make the big leagues or whatever. Mm. And ends up um, playing with some or actually it goes canoeing with uh, a couple of uh, Swampy Cree. Uh -huh. So they're um, a group in Manitoba, that region. Mm. And, and a lot of the First Nations groups, the tribes, actually have an interleague hockey mm. type stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely vicious stuff on the ice. It's amazing. Because the old, the old feuds, the old wars, are just reenacted <laughs> yeah. out yeah. on the ice. But anyways, that character um, invites the main character and his brother to um, a sweat lodge. And so they all climb in the sweat lodge and uh -huh. uh, it's just a mass of writhing bodies and they're in darkness and I don't know if you've ever experienced one but they're quite extraordinary um, and you just yeah you're sliming around in there uh -huh. um, 
And of course, it's 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 quite a it's an important ritual. And there's sacred elements to it. Mm. Um, but I had the all the all the people in the sweat lodge actually talking about who's the better hockey player. <laughs> and interestingly, I had I've had white people come up to me saying, you know, that's that was really disrespectful. And I've had a, a Cree come up to me saying that was awesome. <laughs> that, that that's the kind of thing that would really happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, stuff I've written about India and Turkey. I, the complaints always come from Westerners. Usually, yeah. usually college-educated Westerners. Actually, yeah. um, there's an, an Indian academic was chatting to you this morning. You know, you know, I was was a bit wary. You know, he's, he's bit, he said, "Yeah, love them. They're great." You know? um, mm. The main the main reaction that's the main reaction I get from in, uh, usually Indian writers is, is, is damn much. I wish you know why didn't we do this? <laughs> which is which, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. Well, I suppose we should acknowledge that there is some cultural appropriation that is probably inappropriate that some absolutely. writers probably yes, do. It's, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not an imaginary construct oh, no, of no, academics. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. well, yeah, it's, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, we are magpies, we, you know, we, we steal stuff from all over, yeah, and hopefully polish it into something different, give it back to mm-hmm. That's a good line to end with, because we're over an hour now, believe mm-hmm. it or not. So. Wow. Uh, but I knew we'd get going. Uh, now, now I want to go on for another hour, but we have listeners that won't. So uh, thank you again, Steve Erickson, Ian McDonald, and uh, Jonathan, we wish you were here. Yes. Okay. All right. Thank you for done.